Hello, all you Dirty Rats fans. We've put together two Christmas packages with books and t-shirts. To order, go to HowieCarshow.com and click on store. See you later. This podcast contains content that may be considered unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Mr. Bolger, uh, it's the policy of the committee all witnesses be sworn before they testify. Would you please rise with me and raise your right hand? Solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Thank you. Note for the record that Mr. Bolger is appearing before the committee pursuant to a subpoena issued by this committee and duly served by agreement by a facsimile of Mr. Bolger's lawyer on Tuesday. A copy of that subpoena will be placed in the record. It was June 19, 2003, Washington, D.C., the Capitol. Billy Bulger, the president of the University of Massachusetts, the former president of the Massachusetts State Senate, was finally under oath. He was compelled to answer questions under pains and penalties of perjury. His interrogators, congressmen. The forum, a hearing of the House Committee on Government Reform. Billy had been fighting to prevent this appearance for six months. Pursuant to subpoena, William Bolger appeared before this committee on December 6, 2002. At that time, Mr. Bolger exercised his Fifth Amendment privilege and refused to testify. On April 9, 2003, this committee voted to grant William Bolger immunity to obtain information concerning Whitey's whereabouts and the FBI's misuse of informants. Instead, certain FBI special agent handlers in Boston, including John Conley, chose to break the law by participating in corrupt relationships with their informants. The agents turned a blind eye to the crimes committed by their informants and participated in dismantling state and federal investigations of the New England mob by tipping off their informants to wiretaps, surveillance, and pending indictments. The agents chose personal gain over ethics by forming social relationships with their informants that exceeded the boundaries established by FBI guidelines. The hearing was being telecast live on C-SPAN. Every major TV station in Boston was taking the C-SPAN feed. All regular TV programming was preempted in Boston this late spring morning. For months, Billy had been stalling. The previous committee chairman, Congressman Dan Burton of Indiana, had become obsessed with the unprecedented levels of political and law enforcement corruption in Boston. But because of congressional term limits, Burton was no longer chairman of the committee. Billy had hoped to cut a deal with Burton's successor, Davis. Billy Bulger had spent his entire adult life as a legislator. He knew how to massage the egos of politicians like Davis. Mr. Chairman, he would say, we have so much in common. Can't we work something out here? A closed hearing, perhaps? No TV cameras, no reporters, and a grant of immunity would be much appreciated, Mr. Chairman. It was the sort of backroom deal Billy had been working out for decades on Beacon Hill in Boston. Now Billy had his grant of immunity. As long as he told the truth, Bulger could not be prosecuted. But Bulger hadn't gotten the closed hearing he'd been hoping for. Now his $329,000 a year job as president of UMass was on the line. As he looked up at the grim faces of the congressman waiting to grill him, Billy Bulger saw his old tormentor, Dan Burton, no longer chairman, 
but still on the committee. And loaded for bear, Billy could no longer take the Fifth Amendment over and over again the way he had in the old federal courthouse six months earlier. Was he protecting in any way what the rogues were doing? It's hard to conclude after the investigations that we've conducted over the last couple of years that he did not. People knew that Bulger and Fleming were criminals. They knew about the bookmaking and the loan sharking. They knew about drug dealing and gun running, and some even knew about the murders. But for some reason, nothing seemed to happen. People could not bring themselves to speak the truth. Now we know why. They were scared, they were terrified, and many still are. They were terrified because the local establishment tolerated Whitey Bulger and Stevie Fleming. It facilitated their conduct. It enabled them. And no one seems to doubt that William Bulger, through the example he set, played a major role in helping his brother stay on the streets. William Bulger did not describe his brother in front of hundreds of people at his cherished St. Patrick's Day festivities as the reverend because he thought he was a good man. He did it because he knew that no one would question him. He knew they would laugh with him. Everyone was in on the joke, but it wasn't a joke. Ask Debbie Davis's family. Henry Waxman of California, the ranking Democrat. In his brief opening statement, he trotted out the trite, shop-worn, good brother, bad brother storyline. Almost like the biblical parable of Cain and Abel, his brother, William Bulger, took a completely different path. He became a major political figure in Massachusetts and the president of its public university. That was the nearest thing to a kind review Billy Bulger would get all day. As shocked as the Republicans on the committee were, the Democrats from Massachusetts were just as appalled. They had lived through the dirty rat's reign of terror. As president of the Senate, Billy Bulger hadn't just controlled the state budget. He had also run congressional redistricting every 10 years. Congressmen had to kowtow to Mr. President Bulger, or their districts could be dismembered. They gave money to his campaign committee. Every year they trekked to his St. Patrick's Day breakfast and suffered through his slings and barbs. They had no choice. Billy Bulger had that much power over the congressman. Some of those who had shown up to ask questions of their longtime tormentor weren't even on the committee. All the Bay State Democrats had long histories with Bulger. Among them, Congressman Marty Meehan of Lowell. He had won his seat in Congress by defeating one of Billy's most loyal state Senate foot soldiers. Meehan had called his opponent Billy Bulger's butler. Another congressman who knew the corruption of the Bulgers and the FBI better than most William Delahunt of Quincy. Delahunt wasn't on the committee, but he'd served in the legislature with Billy, and he quoted what he recalled as an astounding revelation by a former federal prosecutor from Boston at a hearing six months earlier. Jeremiah O'Sullivan, former U.S. attorney, former head of the organized crime strike force, who knows the FBI well, made this statement. If you go against the FBI, they will try to get you. They will wage war on you. Please reflect on that statement, my colleagues. This is a culture that requires radical surgery. It can't stand, and what is necessary, as others have suggested, 
There's transparency where appropriate and accountability. And then there was Billy Bulger's own Congressman, Steve Lynch. When Billy resigned from the state legislature to assume the UMass presidency in 1996, he had run his eldest son, Billy Bulger Jr., for the Senate seat he'd held for a quarter century. But Steve Lynch, a young state rep, had challenged the young Bulger. In an extremely bitter Democrat primary, Lynch had crushed young Bulger, ending Billy's dreams of a dynasty. Lynch began with a quick salute to his predecessor. And I have had the unique opportunity to witness Mr. Bulger's distinguished career of public service. One that, in my opinion, has met the highest professional standard of excellence. At the same time, growing up in the housing projects of South Boston, I also had opportunity, ample opportunity, to see families that were greatly harmed by the influence of organized crime and indirectly by the effects of the misdeeds by the FBI agents who protected those criminals. Then Lynch really turned up the heat on his neighbor and vanquished rival. As millions in New England watched on live television, Lynch compared the Bulger's reign to a terrorist dictatorship being imposed on Boston. In the course of this investigation, we have seen citizens murdered because they turned to the FBI for protection. If we were examining actions of the KGB in the Soviet Union during the Cold War, or if we were condemning the butchery of secret police in some struggling third world country, we would instinctively, when we read about those atrocities, we instinctively would take comfort in the protections of our constitutional government. I think it's generally the case when we read about things like that, we say to ourselves, thank God that couldn't happen here. Well, it happened here. It happened here. And we've got to wake up to that fact. The American public has yet to wake up to the fact, but we have witnessed in these committee hearings a collapse of certain constitutional protections. In constitutional terms, this is like a 40-year sinkhole, a period where the underpinnings of democracy were allowed to decay, in which the individual protections guaranteed by our Constitution were subverted in the interest of pursuing La Cosa Nostra. Billy Bulger had previously claimed not to know where his fugitive brother was. His only conversation with Whitey after he fled the state was brief, he said. His sole sympathizer on the committee, Henry Waxman, then asked Billy what seemed to be a series of scripted questions. Um, you've been criticized for not contacting law enforcement officials about your call with your brother. Did you contact the authorities before or after receiving the call? No, I told my lawyer immediately after it. In Massachusetts, we are have the benefit of a statute which allows for a sibling to uh, talk to uh, a brother or sister under these circumstances. And uh, I thought that that, well, I think now that that's somewhat protective. There was a law that said is it this you're special permitted? chapter 274 section 4 I think uh -huh. and uh, it's a one that um, is uh, protective of the family relationship it seeks to encourage the family relationship and be protective of it many and, people uh, have written 
about your actions and they've said you had a basic choice. You had to choose between loyalty to your brother and your civic duty to assist in his arrest and you chose your uh, brother. How do you respond to that criticism? Well, well they're, they're wrong on that. I, I'm his brother. He called me. He already sought to call me. And I told his friend where I'd be, and I received the call. And it seems to me that um, it, it, that is in no way inconsistent with my devotion to my own uh, responsibilities my public responsibilities as a, uh, well, at that time, uh, President of the Senate. I believe that I uh, have always taken those as the, my, first, uh, my first obligation. Then Waxman inquired about his immunity agreement. Billy tried to explain why he'd asserted his Fifth Amendment rights over and over again like a gangster at the committee's earlier hearing in Boston six months prior. Billy was concerned, he said, about being asked to testify under oath about his earlier statements before a federal grand jury investigating his brother and the corrupt FBI. When you're going into a grand jury, I mean, others have written about this, but uh, innocent people are more likely to plead the privilege in secret proceedings, in a secret proceeding, you're all alone, and the prosecutor knows, and the prosecutors, in this case plural, know what they're doing. And uh, it's a time, I think, for great caution. And it's a, an exercise, in my belief, of a constitutional right that uh, is for the innocent. And uh, so I exercised it, and I thought that there should be no punishment for it, and no one should question it as uh, it being something bad. That's my understanding of it as an attorney. And in fact, the law, the cases in the Supreme Court of the United States insist that it's a law for innocent men who find themselves in ambiguous circumstances. And it should not be a method of uh, punishment or persecution on, for anyone who exercises that right ambiguous circumstances. The same phrase he'd cited in refusing to answer questions about his brother six months earlier. The evidence before the committee indicated that corrupt FBI agents in Boston had been acting as a secret police force for both Bulger brothers for 40 years, destroying their political and underworld foes in return for payoffs and favors of one form or another. Billy wanted everyone to know that he, too, was a victim of the FBI's Gestapo tactics, as he told another Massachusetts congressman, John Tierney of Salem. As recently as a week ago, uh, we received a visit at my home from um, two people who identified themselves as FBI people. And uh, they... Um, met my daughter, and uh, I asked her to just give me a quick synopsis of it. May I just read it to you? Well, I, I think at the end of our time we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do that, but if okay. you want to enter the written synopsis on the record, we could ask the chairman to do that with unanimous oh, consent, okay. and I've got some other questions I want to... Okay, but they, may, I just, may I just quote one of the... Uh, we'll sure, go ahead, we'll extend some time. One of the gentlemen said, look, I'm from Boston. We want to talk to your mother. She doesn't have to say a word. We just want her to listen to us. We want to explain things to her. 
Do you see what's going on in North Carolina with Rudolph? They are tearing that town apart. That's what will happen here. But if we can get someone in the family, just one person to drop, say something that will help us arrest the fugitive, it will be over just like that. We will even help to rebuild your father's reputation. Do you have the names of those two individuals? Yes. And you'll share those with the committee? Sure. Would you say state them right now? Fine. Yeah. One's name is James Stover, and the other is J. J. Michael Doyle. A reporter for the Washington Post had once asked Billy what it was like to have a brother like Whitey. You can only imagine, Billy replied. Now no one needed to imagine. Billy was fighting for survival, for his legacy. And now he would finally give a public explanation of what it was like to have a bloodthirsty, drug-dealing serial killer for a brother. After 16 years, the FBI finally has its man. A tip led investigators to a Santa Monica apartment. It was Whitey and his girlfriend. Agents and other task force members. I don't know how they make people like that. I don't know how a human can be like that. Please allow me to speak plainly. I do not know where my brother is. We start off with breaking news. Notorious mobster Whitey Bulger is dead. Reports surfacing that Bulger was killed in a West Virginia prison. I mean, that's the guy I put one in the chamber, like, and he looked up, and I'm aiming, and he says, the other guy, hey, a bag of peanuts, please. From HCRN Studios in Boston, this is Dirty Rats. The subject that interests so many, the life and the activities of my brother James, is painful and difficult for me. But it is a subject I've lived with for a long time. For years, my political opponents, my detractors in the press, and my adversaries in public debate have tried to use my brother in a cynical and calculated way in order to gain advantage. I first sought political office in the year 1960. Be assured that the subject of my brother was contentious from the start. On the occasion of my first speech, a political uh, foe told me that I should, quote, be in jail, unquote, with my brother. And it has been a refrain for 40 years. Among the constituents in my legislative district, and in the Massachusetts Senate, there was always an awareness of my brother. It was never a secret. But people understood that we were different people who lived different lives and should be judged separately. When I was elected president of the educational institution, I am privileged to lead the University of Massachusetts. The members of the Board of Trustees knew of this circumstance in my life, yet they judged me on my own merits and they have my lasting gratitude. Now I am in a much larger arena where the audience is so vast that I cannot rely on its members 
having personal impressions of me as a basis for their judgments. I know that in some quarters I will no longer be seen or judged as an individual. I doubt that that happier time will ever return for me. But there is a reason to believe that a fairer perspective will surface again for those other family members who have shown great strength in the face of the onslaught by the media and by overzealous government authority. In other words, he was a victim. His story, and he was sticking to it, was that he hadn't known what was going on with his brother. The committee chairman asked him about Stevie Flemmy's house next door to his, where his brother and Flemmy had murdered Stevie's girlfriend, among other crimes. Let me just ask, you had weapons found next door, there were a lot of activities going on next door to you. Right. Uh, were you aware of this? I, uh, sure, I was aware when they were discovered and picked up. I mean, where did you find But I didn't know. I mean, whoever, when they put them there, didn't tell me. The way Billy Bulger found out everything he told Congress was by reading the newspapers. He hated the Boston Globe, even though their corrupt columnists had for years mythologized his brother as a benign Robin Hood who kept the drugs out of Southie. But as much as he disliked the Globe, he hated the tabloid Boston Herald even more. There's a story in the, in the Herald today. I don't, I don't suppose you've had an opportunity to read the Herald yet, but I don't ever read it. The Herald never called Whitey Robin Hood. While the Globe remained silent, the Herald exposed how Whitey was flooding Southie with cocaine. Despite his professed disdain for both Boston newspapers, Billy apparently read them avidly. All day, Billy kept saying he knew nothing until it appeared in the public prints. He didn't even know his gangster brother was working for the FBI, and vice versa, until he read it in the newspaper. On the question of whether I, I, it came to, I came to the conclusion that there was, in fact, a relationship between the FBI and my brother. That is so. And I already alluded to the time that that uh, first uh, came to my attention. It was when uh, Mr. Morris uh, told uh, the newspaper and the newspaper printed it. Mr. Bulger, when did you first learn of the incident between Whitey and Billy Johnson at Logan Airport? I think the first I ever saw of it was when it was in, reported in the newspaper. I want to talk a little bit about the safe deposit boxes. Uh, apparently, your, your brother has safety boxes, did or may still have safety boxes around the world, and one of them was in the United Kingdom. Now, today you're aware of that fact, is that right? Yes. And you're also aware of the fact that you were a contact name on at least one box right. today. And, and how did you come into possession of that information? Through the newspaper. It was reported in the newspaper, and that was the very first I ever heard of it. When did you become aware that uh, Kevin Weeks was cooperating in the uh, investigation regarding James? Um, well, I, I, I'm, not, I'm uncertain of that, but it was, it, was, it was hugely publicized, so there was no mystery to it. Did anyone tell you, or did you, do you remember becoming aware that Kevin Weeks was cooperating with the investigation? No, but I, I think I saw it in the paper. Were you aware that your brother was involved in any way, in any way, with providing some kind of munitions to Northern Ireland? I read that in the paper. 
Stevie Fleming, uh, were you aware that uh, he had extensive uh, real estate holdings? I think only after he was um, in trouble, indicted. I, I read it in the paper. I didn't know of his... I was not aware of it before that. Did you ever hear any rumors or anything that would indicate your brother was involved in some murders? L someplace I saw it in the paper. Refresh my memory. How did you find out he was uh, an informant or alleged to be an informant? Uh, the very first was in this um, piece in the Globe in the late 80s. That's the first time I think it, that um, I, you know, my curiosity was piqued about this. Through the newspaper, when it was in, reported in the, the newspaper, and the newspaper printed it in the newspaper. I think I saw it on the paper. I read that in the paper. In the newspaper. newspaper. Dirty Rats will continue after a brief word from our sponsors. The reviews for Dirty Rats are in. People love this gripping and gory true crime podcast. But a lot of Dirty Rats fans want more. Become a Dirty Rats Patreon member. Just go to patreon.com slash dirtyratspod. For only $4.99 a month, you'll get content like John Zip Connolly's full FBI training video, behind-the-scenes interviews with the Dirty Rats writers, producers, and narrators, and so much more. Patreon.com slash DirtyRatsPod. So many questions. One was Billy's relationship with John Connolly, the crooked FBI agent. Zip was already in prison after his racketeering conviction in Boston, but had not yet been convicted of the gangland hit he orchestrated in Miami. You grew up with John Connolly, didn't you? I did. And you and your bro brothers were, were buddies of John Connolly throughout your childhood and into adulthood. I didn't know that. That's well, news. Well, were you or weren't you? No. I mean, I, I know when I went into the Army in the year when I was 19 years of age, John Connolly was 12 years of age. Oh, I see. So it's highly unlikely in the course of normal relationships. That so he was very close to, to Whitey, though? He was closer to Whitey? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. Well, how did he and Whitey get to know each other? I think it all came years later. But they came from the same neighborhood? Yes. Oh. The FBI hadn't just protected Whitey. It had also eliminated his brother Billy's political rivals. Chief among them, the majority leader of the Senate, the number two Democrat in the body, when Billy was number three. Did uh, Mr. Connolly assist you in any of your political endeavors? I believe so. In what endeavors did he help you? When I'd be uh, involved in campaigns in the, in the district. Did he help you in your campaign to become uh, President of the Senate? That was an in, no, that was within the body, and he did not. Well, one of your opponents was indicted, wasn't he? And convicted? No. You didn't have an opponent that was, uh, that was a potential opponent that was going to? The incumbent. No. It was in, yeah. The majority leader was indicted, and that paved the way for upward mobility. Well, that was one of your potential opponents. Wasn't he indicted about that time? I don't think of, he, he was, he, he is still, I hope, a friend of mine, and uh, he was indicted, yes. That was Senator Joseph DiCarlo of Revere. He was younger than Billy and had been in line to become Senate president. He'd been ensnared in a bribery scandal involving state contractors, but U.S. House Speaker Tip O'Neill of Cambridge told him the Justice Department had assured him 
DiCarlo was in no legal jeopardy and would not be indicted. A few months later, though, Whitey began paying off Connolly and other FBI agents. And shortly thereafter, DiCarlo was indicted, convicted, forced to resign, and then sent to prison. And that paved the way for you to become the president of the Senate. I, it was still within the power of the president to decide who would be named uh, majority leader. So there was nothing definite about my uh, ascendancy into that position. Do, do, you, do you know of any threats made by your brother Whitey to people that uh, were giving you political difficulty, creating difficulty for you? I don't know. I, I don't know. But nothing authorized by me, I assure you, Congressman. But, but nothing. Th there are people who said that Whitey came up to him and said, hey, you know who I am, you SOB. If you don't leave my brother alone, you're going to re regret it. You don't know anything about that? I don't know much about it, no. But Billy knew a lot more than he was letting on. In fact, the former Senate president had even taken a phone call from Whitey shortly after the serial killer had gone on the lam. And it was the phone call between the two brothers that piqued the curiosity of not just the congressman in that televised hearing, but of people across the nation. To be continued on the next episode of Dirty Rats. Your brother fled in December 94, and you received the phone call in January of 95, correct? Correct. Okay, your brother broke the law, and you were a public official. Did you go to the authorities to say that your brother had contacted you? I, I informed my attorney just about immediately. Did you go to the officials? No. I remember getting a phone call one night, and there was this voice on the other end. You gotta, you gotta slow down with your, you know, with your mouth, man. You, you, you're gonna get yourself in trouble, Joey. You understand? I said, who's this? Uh, you know, I'm thinking, is this someone joking or whatever? Joey, heed the warning. I didn't want <clears throat> what happened to me to happen to other agents. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Dirty Rats on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Your positive review will help others find our podcast and help us continue to tell the story of these dirty rats.